0: Welcome to Forecast, the Foreshadow podcast, seeking glimpses of heaven on earth through conversations about people's lives and work. I'm Josh, the editor of Foreshadow, a digital literary magazine of work that points to the kingdom of God. Today we will look at the writings of Thomas Merton, a Trappist monk and writer, on the vocation of writing. Specifically, I'll be going through the first chapter of a book called Echoing Silence, Thomas Merton on the Vocation of Writing, edited by Robert Inchousti and published in 2007, which is basically a collection of Merton's writings on writing. The chapter we'll be looking at today is called Writing as a Spiritual Calling, Thomas Merton was born in 1915 and died in 1968. He was a monk at Our Lady of Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky. He wrote over 70 books on various genres and themes such as poetry, social criticism, peace and justice, and other topics. He's well known for his spiritual autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain. The book we'll be looking at today the first chapter of this book will be uh, it arranges short excerpts of Merton's writings, all based on the theme of the vocation or the calling of writing. I've arranged some of these excerpts by common categories, 12 in total, and I've grouped these 12 categories into two main sections. The first is on vocation, and the second is on writing as a form of ministry. You might be wondering, what's the difference between vocation and writing as a form of ministry? Well, generally, how I understand it, vocation involves the writer as a person and their identity as a writer and what that means to be called to write. So it's not looking so much at the, the nuts and bolts or the activity of writing itself as much as looking at the identity of the writer and the formation required in that person in order to, to write well, um, the background, development, the second category, the ministry of writing, looks more at the act of writing itself. From the technique of writing, but especially the reasons why a writer writes and what um, what are some of the goals of writing. So those are the two main. Uh, uh, sections, vocation and the ministry of writing. So the first section we'll be looking at is vocation. And and the first category of, or the first group of themes that fall under vocation is more of a background picture of the universal vocation of not just writers, but of Christians. If you listened to the previous forecast, um, you might remember that I read a personal essay about how I was interning at a church and also writing on the side. And I was trying to understand how those two vocations interacted with each other. And I discovered that actually they pointed me towards a bigger vocation uh, of being a Christian, of following Christ in the neighborhood where I was living. And that vocation drew upon those two smaller vocations, I called it, of writing and interning. And so that's what the first theme is, universal vocation. And, and, and so here we'll be listening from Merton on that. So the first excerpt on this theme of universal vocation is where T- Merton is describing a conversation he's having with a friend while walking down a street in the springtime. And the friend asks him, "'What do you want to be anyway?' And Merton says, "'I could not say I want to be Thomas Merton, the well-known writer of all those book reviews in the back pages of the Times Book Review, or Thomas Merton, the assistant instructor of freshman English at the New Life Social Institute for Progress and Culture. So I put the thing on the spiritual plane where I knew it belonged and said, "'I don't know. I guess what I want to be is a good Catholic.'" And I really appreciate, just pausing here, I really appreciate how Merton is honest in his writing and, and kind of showing us the layers of his, to a small degree, self-deception of um, not wanting to really tell the truth to his friend. And so he's kind of giving a spiritual answer that isn't really real. Uh, he wants. He says he wants to be a good Catholic, but he's also, inside, he, he wants to be... Uh, He wants to be well-known as a writer. But his friend, um, he describes, can see through his his words, and it says, Lax did not accept it. What you should say, he told me, what you should say is that you want to be a saint. A saint? The thought struck me as a little weird. I said, how do you expect me to become a saint? By wanting to, said Lax, simply. And so here Merton is pointing at how deeper than um, some of his desires to be a well-known writer um, or to be spiritually mature, uh, there's, a, there's a deeper calling that his friend identifies. And that is that uh, Merton is called ultimately to be a saint and that all Christians are ultimately called to be a saint. And it's interesting that Merton doesn't quite want that or doesn't realize that he wants that. But um, as we'll find out in some of his other writings, um, he he does, he does see sainthood as the ultimate calling, um, he, although at this point he doesn't recognize that. And so just that puts, I think that helps to put this in context that when describing the vocation of writing, it might be easy to Uh, For me, at least, and it has been in my life, to see that as the ultimate priority of of being a writer, of putting that first, that discipline that's required of writing and um, the the work and the effort. But I think it's helpful to remember, and what Merton points out here, is that even more important than whatever vocation we might be given at a certain time or for a season in our life, are, we have a deeper calling. All of us have a, a, this, this shared, deeper calling. And and to say it's to become a saint can be perhaps um, misleading because what does that mean to become a saint? And I think what it ultimately means is, um, well, the word saint comes from sanctus, and that's holy. That's uh, shared with the, the word the Latin word for holy. And um, and so to be a saint is to be holy. And what does that mean? To be holy, well, God is holy, and and um, so to be holy is to be like God, and to be transformed in God's likeness and, and God's holiness, um, to be transformed in Christ's likeness, and that's our calling. So the next, uh, we'll go to the next passage. Um which is related uh, to this universal calling of being more Christ-like and being transformed in Christ's character. And this comes from a letter to his friend, Mark Van Doren, who is actually a, a teacher, his, uh, his university, one of his university professors. And in this letter, Merton writes uh, that um, a- another aspect of the universal vocation is that we were called to be who we were uniquely made to be. So even though we are called to all called to be holy, each of us has a uh, a specific way that we might express that. He says, I can no longer see the ultimate meaning of a man's life in terms of either being a poet or being a contemplative or even in a certain sense in being a saint, although that is the only thing to be. It must be something much more immediate than that. I and every other person in the world must say, I have my own special, peculiar destiny, which no one else ever has had or ever will have. There exists for me a particular goal, a fulfillment which must be all my own, nobody else's. And it does not really identify that destiny, to put it under some category, poet, monk, hermit. Because my own individual destiny is a meeting, an encounter with God that he has destined for me alone. His glory in me will be to receive from me something he can never receive from anyone else, because it is a gift of his to me, which he has never given to anyone else and never will. My whole life is only that to establish that particular constant with God which is the one he has planned for my eternity. And so it it's interesting to see how on one hand Merton says we have this universal calling to be a saint but on the other hand that is also very extremely personal because we can only become a saint by becoming the people that the individuals God has created us and called us to be, and whom He has called no one else to be in the same way. Of course, there'll be, I'm sure there will be—I'm sure—there will be similarities that will involve loving other people, offering ourselves to to care for them. But in the particulars, we will be doing that in different ways based on who we are. And it reminds me of a—I believe—a Jewish story of how um, I don't remember the details, but. One man, I think a rabbi, was saying that when he goes to heaven, God will not ask him, why were you not Moses? But rather, God will ask him, why were you not more of yourself? So that's, in other words, that's who God has called him to be, is himself, not Moses or any of the prophets. Um, But he has to be who God made him to be, and him alone. It also reminds me of a writing from Metropolitan Anthony Bloom, who was a writer and teacher of the spiritual life, he wrote a lot of books, especially on prayer. And in one of his books, he writes about how in the book of Revelation, it says that uh, all of those who overcome evil are given a white stone with a new name written on it, which only they will know. And um, he writes about the stone. This name is not the label we are given and called by in this world. Our true name Our eternal name exactly fits us, our whole being. It defines and expresses us perfectly. It is known by God alone, and he tells us what it is. No one else can know it because it expresses our unique relationship with our creator. Uh, This echoes what Merton is writing about how our unique vocation Our unique path to becoming Christ-like, which only we can fulfill, comes only out of our relationship with God. That the more we know God, the more we are known by God, the more we live into that identity that he has called us to be. And then Merton continues, Once that contact is established between us and God, I feel it in my bones and it sets me on fire. The possibilities are without end. Unlimited fruitfulness, life, productivity, vision, peace. Yet I have no way of saying just what it will be. I don't think it will be merely writing, and I don't think it will be anything I have ever yet known as contemplation, and in fact I don't think it will be anything that anyone on earth can see or understand, especially myself. I really like Merton writing there that he doesn't know what that will look like, and it may be something he's hasn't even considered yet or doesn't expect. Um, it reminds me of something one of my um, professors in seminary said when I, when I was when I where I was studying writing as a form of ministry. My uh, ministry of writing professor was leading a workshop and said something that really surprised me, and it was that she was saying that if we want to write as a form of ministry, then what we have to be pursuing is not writing as much as the ministry side of it. In other words, the spiritual side of it. We have to be faithful and attentive to where God is leading us, even if that means that God is leading us away from writing itself. So that's one of the differences between being a writer uh, and being a writer as a form of ministry, if that's the right way to say it, or a minister of writing, maybe that's better. The difference is that someone who's pursuing writing has in their mind a fixed goal of of being a writer, whereas someone who's writing in as a form of service to God, although writing is part of that, their deeper priority is faithfulness and obedience to God. And that could mean something that that God will lead them to something other than writing or so something different. It may, Or it may mean that God will still use them and call them to writing. But the main thing is, is following God, even if that leads to somewhere un, uh, unexpected. And so Merton continues, In the light of all that, it doesn't make so much sense anymore to be planning to either renounce or to adopt whole blocks of activity Cutting out all writing or going into solitude for good, as I would like to. The thing is to take a new line and let everything be determined by immediate circumstances that manifest God's will and his action here and now. No matter where it may seem to lead, because I don't know, I don't really know anyway, and I don't have to know, provided that God is doing the leading. Along these lines, in another excerpt, Merton writes about the importance of creativity of the Christian. He says, The creativity of the Christian person must be seen in relation to the whole, to the creative vocation of the new Adam, mystical person of the whole Christ. The creative will of God has been at work in the cosmos since he said, Let there be light. This creative fiat was not uttered merely at the dawn of time all time and all history are a continued uninterrupted creative act, a stupendous ineffable mystery in which God has signified his will to associate man with himself in his work of creation. So I think what he is saying is that God's creative activity is at work now and has been at work ever since God said, let there be light. And it's, our job as Christians to join in with that creative activity, continuing to God, continuing to breathe His Spirit on the world, and also how in the Book of Revelation Jesus says, "Behold, I am making all things new." This promise of a new creation that we are called to participate in in uh, help working with Jesus to make things new as what J.R.R. Tolkien might say as subcreation creation that we're called to be sub-creators, um, creating things um, not only in partnership with God, but also recognizing that God is the ultimate creator, but he also gives us tasks and, and we can join in on that work um, with him. And so relating that to the previous thing i was saying about um following god even if that means not writing i think perhaps for all christians we're called to join in on that creative work that god is doing and writing is one of the ways that that can take place but certainly obviously not the only way there's a wide variety of ways that we can participate in um, creativity and in god's creation Um, not just writing and the arts but through how through how we use our hands, building things, or working with people, or um, conversations, um, helping to take care of the creation, all of these ways are um, are ways that we can join in the creativity of God. So now that we've looked at the universal calling of Christians to be christ-like to be transformed in christ's um, image and likeness and also to participate in christ's creative work of making all things new now i'd like to look at uh, different ways that uh, merton describes vocation there's three ways that i see in this chapter the first is he describes a vocation as something inherent something that we're born with perhaps but elsewhere he describes vocation as also a specific task that we're given or a mission that may be related to our circumstances. And a third way he describes vocation is as a calling, which um, is a, a little bit different than something one is born with, perhaps, and something a, a li- maybe a little bit different than a task one is assigned Um in some ways, which we'll look at, such as in the case of a religious vocation as his own, being a monk. So, um, on the first, vocation as something inherent, Merton writes, I have tried to learn in my writing a monastic lesson I could probably not have learned otherwise, to let go of my idea of myself, to take myself with more than one grain of salt. If the monastic life is a life of hardship and sacrifice, I would say that, for me, most of the hardship has come in connection with writing. It is possible to doubt whether I have become a monk, a doubt I have to live with, but it is not possible to doubt that I am a writer, that I was born one and will most probably die as one. Disconcerting, disedifying as it is, this seems to be my lot and my vocation. It is what God has given me in order that I might give it back to him. So there he makes a contrast between his being a monk um, and his being a writer. And it seems that Merton views himself as more fundamentally or inherently a writer than as a monk, even though obviously he's both. Um, But where I think he's saying is that ever since he was a child, perhaps, He's had this love for words and writing. And I I can kind of identify with this because when I, you know, as I ever since I've been a child, I've also enjoyed reading and writing and and words and and language. And so it's something that I that just someone something that someone is and um, is part of their DNA, maybe. And um, and that's what Merton is describing about himself. And he sees that as a vocation as one kind of vocation because he sees it as something God has given him, some a way that God has made him and designed him um, using a computer term, programmed him, but that's probably not the best metaphor. And I, I like what Merton says, that God has given it to him in order that he might give it back to God. And so that goes back to the universal calling um that we all, all Christians have, and humans, we believe, all humans have, is to give back to God what God has given and gifted to us. And this leads to the next kind of vocation Merton describes, and that's vocation as a specific task. And this is really just um, something he implies in his writing, but I'll just read out of context what he writes in a different excerpt. And it's describing his a friend, Lax, whom I mentioned earlier. I am not sure whether this conception of his necessarily implies a specific vocation, a definite and particular mission, but in any case he assumed that it was the sort of thing that should be open to me, to Bob Gibney, to Seymour Friedgood, to Mark Van Doren, to some writers he admired, perhaps even to somebody who did not know how to talk, but could only play a trumpet or a piano. And it was open to himself also. But for himself, he was definitely waiting to be sent. So that might be difficult to understand what he's saying because out of context, but here he's describing a vocation as a mission or as, as something that someone sends one to do. And... Um, And that's, for example, I think of um, Frodo Baggins from The Lord of the Rings and how Frodo was kind of given this ring. And as a result of that, he was given this task. Um, He had the choice to refuse it, but um, he was given this task and with the help of others to destroy the ring. And that was his vocation um, in, in one sense. One could argue that he may not have been born with that task. Um, it was more arising out of circumstances uh, of, of being related to B- Bilbo and inheriting the ring. Um, it didn't have so much to do with his gifts or personality or, um, or situation in life so much, although those things did play a role. And perhaps one could argue that um, providence... Arranged it so that he would be the right person, the right hobbit to take this ring to Mount Doom. But um, still, it's a, it's a task that arose um, arose out of circumstances that that happened in his life, um, outside of his control, of course. And if he had lived in a perhaps in a, uh, an ideal world, where he would still have a vocation as as a person. Um, called to um, we can presume uh, grow in Christ likeness he wouldn't have this task of destroying the ring in an ideal world because the ring wouldn't be there but um, so that's there's there's a difference between those kinds of vocations Um, so that's all that to say that um, Merton seems to hint that um, vocation can also be a task that's given to us perhaps for a season um, a mission that we're on to um, that, that can exist alongside um, another vocation a- as well. And I think that can sometimes be writing itself. To give an example, if someone who doesn't really consider themselves a writer suddenly finds themselves in a situation where they need to write something perhaps publicly, um Something they may never ever have this um, situation where they might have to do it again in their life, but this one time they have to write something, that might be seen as this kind of vocation, a task that they're given um, to write or to communicate something. Um, It may not mean that they will be writers for the rest of their life, but but for this season they need to uh, um, commit to this work and do it the best they can. And then third, Merton describes vocation as a calling. And in this passage, he, it's from a letter to um, Robert Menchin. Um, he is describing his own calling of uh, being a monk. And so he says, I had always wanted to be a writer, but one had to make a living. And so I took up teaching, literature, college level as a profession that would be favorable for writing. However, the idea of something more fundamental began to grow on me. The idea of a monastic vocation is something distinct from that of a career. In a sense, you don't pick the monastic life, it picks you. In religious terms, that is expressed by saying that one believes oneself called by God to live a monastic life. Translated into ordinary language, this refers to a deep implosion, which may even go against the grain of one's conscious inclinations. It entails a fight. There is a considerable amount of doubt and resistance, a great deal of questioning, and at times the whole thing seems absurd. Yet, you have to push on with it. There is a sense of one's destiny and identity involved in this struggle. So here he distinguishes between his monastic vocation and his perhaps writing vocation. He says he had always wanted to be a writer and so he took up teaching in so that he could write and he, he identifies that aspect with a career. And so maybe that's another dimension to that first kind of vocation as something inherent that if one is fortunate enough to, to have a career in what they love doing, in what they are naturally gifted to doing. That is one kind of vocation, and it's associated with making a living and uh, earning money and providing for your oneself and family. But then there's this different kind of vocation, and this is a, a religious... Well, it's called religious, although you can argue that we c- all things are religious if seen properly. But... Um, it's a different kind of vocation in which one is called by God to something that one may not actually be uh, well suited for or they may not think not think that they are well suited for. Um, there are plenty of examples in the Bible of prophets who are called to to do something to, uh, which they feel goes against their nature uh, or in some to some way. They might have a speech impediment or they might be timid um, or, or something else. Um, and, but yet God has a purpose for them and God calls them to do something, to go out of their comfort zone, to to not just do a task for for one time, but to to embody something, um, to em- embody uh, this calling and to live into a calling. For, um, and so that's how he describes his being a monk. And um, so, so it's very interesting to make this distinction because, at least for me, uh, when I was um, trying to understand, and I still ask similar questions about what God is leading me to do. But uh, but I remember reading um, a book called "Let Your Life Speak" as part of my graduate studies, and it's about vocation as coming from within and the in, uh, listening for what one enjoys doing, what one has a knack for doing. And I often wondered how that related to um, the kind of vocation I saw in the Bible where um, oftentimes God called people to do things they didn't feel they were ready or they didn't feel they were naturally suited to do. And I, th- and I think Merton here makes this distinction clear that those two, those two things that we call uh, vocations – are different kinds of vocations, and, and they might be able to exist alongside each other. Um, they might overlap in some ways, but it's helpful to make the distinction between them, I think. Merton goes on to say in that same excerpt, For me, the monastic vocation even implied that I might have to give up writing, and when I finally decided to enter the Trappist Monastery of Gethsemane in Kentucky, I was reconciled with the idea of not writing anymore until I was told to do so. As it happened, I was told to continue writing. But for me, writing has always remained secondary. What has been most important, what has been important above all, has been living in the most meaningful possible way, at least for me. So, given what we've said about these three kinds of vocations that Merton has identified, vocation as something inherent, vocation as a specific task for a short time, and vocation as a calling from God. This passage I just read, I think, helps to show that there might be a hierarchy of callings, that although they might exist at the same time, at least Merton said that writing has always remained secondary to him that his um, calling as a monk, it seems, was more important than writing. And he had to be willing to give up his writing um, to be a monk, although fortunately for him, um, he didn't have to end up giving it up. Actually, he found that as a monk, he was able to write and his monastic um, life found its way into his writing And as we will find out later, his writing also fed his monastic life too. Um, But nonetheless, he saw his calling as a monk to be uh, more important than that of writing because it came from God. Uh, And his writing came from God too, um, he says. But it seems that he prioritized his calling as a monk even more so. Perhaps he found that that was um, more closely... um, related to this ultimate calling of being Christ-like. He did that through being a monk and through writing, but um, first through being a monk. I wonder if part of the reason he prioritized his monastic life is because of his interdependence with his brothers at the monastery, that he had vowed to to, uh, follow God through obeying his abbot uh, through loving and serving his brothers at the monastery and the other people in his life, and um, and I can to give an example um, in my life, I I hold my my marriage and God willing our child coming um, to um, to a higher priority than, for instance, writing, um, because it involves, I, I made a vow um, uh, and I, and these people depend on me and I, de- I depend on them and there's this um, mutual uh, responsibility and dependability that's there and, and so, and it's through that that I ultimately serve God um, who's the first priority. But um, perhaps that's why uh, Merton prioritizes these things. It's God, God is first seeking the kingdom of God first and um, the next layer is the people in his life the people he's committed to and then comes the other vocations such as writing um, and of course he does serve and love people through his writing but um, there's, a, but there's a more of an immediacy that comes with his day-to-day interactions um, with the people in his life that perhaps makes it more important than his writing. Finally, to um, close this first section on vocation, Merton says something that I think is interesting, and I don't know what exactly to make of it, but I think it's worth sharing. And it, this excerpt, in this excerpt, he describes the action of becoming our vocation, of vocation as a way of life. So he says, The true philosopher and the true poet become what they are when they go beyond philosophy and poetry and cease to be philosophers or to be poets. It is at that point that their whole lives become philosophy and poetry. In other words, there is no longer any philosophy or any poetry separable from the unity of their existence. Philosophy and poetry have disappeared the ordinary acts of everyday life eating sleeping walking etc become philosophical acts which grasp the ultimate principles of life in life itself and not in abstraction so i think he what he's saying here is that to be a true philosopher or a true poet for example it has to be your entire way of life um and so you're no longer, it's no longer about the label of being a philosopher or, or that being a career uh, um, label or, or even about the things you do, but it's about your, your entire way of life. And this goes back to what my professor of writing and as a form of ministry said, was that to be ministers of writing, you have to go beyond just writing. Um, You have to go into that point where it's about your relationship with God and following God. And through that, um, God will use you to write or to do other creative things. Um, but, But there's this deeper calling of joining in this creative work that God is doing and not having any presuppositions about what that will look like, but following along and seeing where that leads. So I think that's a good place to end the first section on vocation, that uh, we are all called to join in this work, uh, but that there are different hierarchies and different smaller vocations that overlap, that God gives us as gifts that we can use to fulfill that universal vocation of joining in this work that Christ is doing to make all things new. And that um, our calling is to give back to God those gifts that he has given us. And so they're never ours to possess um, for ourselves. But all of these vocations, um, whether writing, whether the, the work we do, whether um, being a monk or having a family, um, the friends that we have, the people in our lives we are called to give all of those things back to God and to serve God uh, and to love God and bless God in the world through our relationships and through how we interact with those um, people and those gifts that we've been given. look at the second section, which is the Ministry of Writing. And so these are excerpts that I've categorized in which Merton describes writing as a form of ministry. Um, So first we'll begin by looking at three different purposes that Merton uh, associates with writing. There are of course more purposes than these, but these are three that I've um, found in this first chapter. The first is writing as a path to holiness. Second is writing to teach. And the third is writing as a form of evangelism. So the first excerpt on uh, writing as a path to holiness um, comes from a, a journal entry in which he writes, I am not here in the monastery to think about being a writer, except I am here to try to learn humility and how to do God's will and serve him the best way I can. And writing has something to do with all these things, accidentally, because it happens that I like to write and try to know how. So there he begins by, again, distinguishing between his writing and his monastic vocations. But then he says that, the two are related because uh, through writing, he can learn how to become a better monk. He can learn how to become more humble and to do God's will and, and to serve God. And um, he will go on to explain how that is in, in other sections that we'll look at. But it's interesting that Merton there at the end says that the way that he knows he can do those things through writing is because It happens that I like to write and try to know how. He doesn't say any more, at least not in this excerpt, but it makes me wonder if perhaps God gives us things that we like to do and we can use those things to become more like Christ. Even things like um, if we like to play football, if we like to run, or if we like to repair things with our hands that those are ways that we can perhaps grow closer to God and become more like God. Just the fact that we like doing them and we want to learn m- more about those things, perhaps that can somehow be a path towards God because God has given us, uh, in, in, in cases that are wholesome, uh, th- God has given us those, those desires, those talents, and that desire to learn. This next excerpt on writing as a path to holiness or writing as clearing a way to God comes from another journal entry that he wrote eight years later, after the previous one I read. He says, I am finding myself forced to admit that my lamentations about my writing job have been foolish. At the moment, the writing is the one thing that gives me access to some real silence and solitude. Also, I find that it helps me to pray because when I pause at my work, I find that the mirror inside me is surprisingly clean and deep and serene, and God shines there and is immediately found without hunting, as if he had come close to me while I was writing, and I had not observed his coming. And this, I think, should be the cause of great joy, and to me it is. So here, I think he beautifully expresses how writing is a way for him to grow closer to God. It, it clears a way for him so that after he's done writing, he f- he's in the presence of or he's uh, more aware of the presence of God than he might have been before writing. It helps him to pray. It, maybe it can be a way for him to pray. Um, and he says he finds that the mirror inside him is clean, perhaps that comes partly from the fact that writing forces him to reflect on his, his thinking and on his experiences and, and, and that enables him to, to identify the things that are troubling him and, and all of those things can help clear the way in his relationship to God. But um, this is a, an example of how writing for him is, is, a, is a tool that helps him in his monastic vocation. In another journal entry later that year, he goes on to say this, It seems to me that writing, far from being an obstacle to spiritual perfection in my own life, has become one of the conditions on which my perfection will depend. If I am to be a saint, and there is nothing else that I can think of desiring to be, it seems that I must get there by writing books in a Trappist monastery. If I am to be a saint— I have not only to be a monk, which is what all monks must do to become saints, but I must also put down on paper what I have become. It may sound simple, but it is not an easy vocation. So here again, Merton identifies how writing and his monastic vocation are integrally united. He, As he, understa- as he understands it, The two work together so that he can fulfill his ultimate vocation of becoming a saint. He doesn't explain how or why he thinks writing is crucial in this regard, at least not in this excerpt of the journal entry in this book. But he seems to think that um, an integral part of his calling and of his being a monk involves writing his experiences down um, and in sh- sharing it with others as well. Um, so here we see two aspects of writing. One is the private, where he's, um, he's writing as a form of prayer. It's a way of um, clearing the way to God. But then also the public aspect of putting his journey down on paper so that others can also um, learn from what he's experiencing. I say this, um, this public versus private, because um, the private, I assume that his journal entries are, um, at the time when he's writing them, private and personal. His, although now we can read some of them, but um, and also the previous excerpt I read about him praying to God and his writing clearing away for his prayers, those are, seem to me, private activities. But he also wrote for the public. He published many books. And um, this was part of his task and what he was given by his abbot to do. And later on in this journal entry, he describes more about how he he thinks that he is to become public property to some degree. And I assume that means through people reading about his experiences. But also in that entry, he writes that um, to be as good a monk as I can and to remain myself and to write about it, To put myself down on paper in such a situation with the most complete simplicity and integrity, masking nothing, confusing no issue, this is very hard because I am all mixed up in illusions and attachments. These too will have to be put down, but without exaggeration, repetition, useless emphasis. So here he's describing how, whether private or public, he needs integrity in his writing. He needs to write simply. Um, he needs to tell the truth. And um, and that's part of his ministry as a writer. And so that relates to writing as a path to holiness because um, it's a path of... I- he's describing it as a path of self-reflection and examination so that he's being as truthful as he can with himself in his writing. And so as faithfully as he can, as truthfully as he can, representing his experiences, um, his um, daily um, experiences in the flesh, and translating that into words so that when people read that, they, they are reading a truthful picture of what he's experiencing and reflecting on. And then in another journal entry, Towards the end of that year, he writes another example of how writing makes a way. And he says, I seek no face. I treasure no experience, no memory. Anything I write down here is only for personal guidance because of my constant gravitation away from solitude. It will remind me how to go home. Not to be like the man who looked in the glass and straightaway forgot what manner of man he was. Yet I shall not remember myself in such a way that I remember the person I am not. So here again he uses this metaphor of glass or a mirror um, to describe writing, that writing enables him to see himself more clearly um, and reminds him of who he is, But it's not in a self-absorbed way, but it's so that he can see through himself, it seems. As he says, it reminds him how to go home. Um, Because uh, just filling in some gaps, seeing through himself um, to see Christ in him, and in seeing Christ, he sees his way home. And so he's saying that the reason he's writing is because it's so easy for him to gravitate away from solitude, um, and solitude is uh, central to the monk's vocation. Because um, the very first monks sought solitude as a way to seek God, to to put God as the the foremost important thing in their you know being in their life, and to prioritize God. and And the and the the word monk. Um, or the and the word monastery at least um, comes from mono monos, which means one, so um, uh, or uh, to means alone, um, and so the monk's vocation is to be alone in order to find God. It, it seems, and and for for Merton, writing is the way that he can reorient himself back to that solitude so that he can find the path back home to God. It reminds me of a conversation that I had in a previous forecast with the poet Carl Winderl about how he, every morning, as part of his devotional practice of reading um, various books in the Bible, he also writes. And and so writing is also for him um, a way to, to find solitude and, and to find his way back t- home to God. And um, in our conversation, we discussed how writing is for him a, a way that he communes with his soul and communes with God. And so we see that as an uh, Merton echoing that here, too, with writing as a way that he communes with himself in order to commune with God. And writing, of course, requires someone to be alone, without distraction, without um, distraction working on something in, um, for sometimes for a long period of time, thinking deeply about it, and just the, the act of writing itself lends way to reflecting and meditating and, um, and being still in a way that a lot of activities um, don't enable one to do. So that's the first purpose that Merton identifies for writing, and that's writing as a path to God that through writing we can connect with God. The second purpose is to teach. And here in one of the excerpts, this is from his autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain, he writes, It took me time to find it out, but I write down what I have found out at last, so that anyone who is now in the position that I was in then may read it and know what to do, to save himself from great peril and unhappiness, and so, he's giving the reason that he's writing his autobiography. It's to um, at least one of the reasons is to write down what he experienced, so that people can learn from his experiences, and that's. Um, I, was, I was speaking. With, I often speak with my wife about. The things that she reads and how much wisdom she learns through reading fiction and the choices that the characters make, um, sometimes the mistakes they make, um, all of those things can teach her um, about being a human. They give They give her wisdom. And so, so this is one of the reasons that writers write, is to teach people. Um, not so much, it can be um, didactic in the sense of... Um, a teacher telling their students what they need to do, but it can also be um, teaching through example. Um, especially, I think, fiction tends to do this, where it's more of a subtle um, lesson that one learns um, through the, the choices that the characters make. And the more believable those characters and choices are, the more um, relatable they, uh, they are, I think, for the readers. And I think one of the reasons fiction and even autobiographies like Merton's are so powerful is because it is when we as readers identify with the characters. So that way we can see more clearly how the choices they make um, are either uh, good or bad for them. And the more we identify with them, I think the more close to home their own experiences hit us because it's not just um some remote character we don't care about it's someone we we ourselves identify with and so we want the best for them and and we can learn from from them and and the choices they make the third purpose of writing that merton identifies is as a form of evangelism and here he he gives a a metaphor or a, an image of the artist uh going into a banquet and then running back into the street to tell the passers-by of the wonderful music he has heard coming from inside the palace of the king. And uh, we will actually read that passage, um, the, more, the, the fuller context of that passage later. And, um, but, but for now, that's just to show how um, the writer or the artist, uh, part of their role is to experience something Something um, beautiful in this case, a banquet, and go back to tell others that it's going on and um, in the wider context, Merton is there describing um, the the mystical union of of the of the um, the monk in prayer, the contemplative in prayer to God, experiencing that, and then going to tell others about it. Um, but I think this can also apply more broadly to Christians, uh, We Christians experiencing through our relationship with Christ, through um, our worship, experiencing this beauty, this mystery, this life uh, that God gives us and expressing that through whatever means we have, including writing, so that others can hear the call um, to join in this banquet and this feast and in this project of making all things new. But in order to communicate that, we have to write well. We have to know our craft well. Uh, We have to speak the language in a way that others can understand um, and to speak it simply and clearly so that nothing gets in the way of the message we are communicating. And so Merton writes about the importance of excellence in writing. In a journal entry, he says, There is nothing wrong with praying to be... As a writer, as everything obscure, unknown. I'm not sure that sentence is grammatically correct, but um, he goes on to say, There is everything wrong with praying to be a bad writer. So, what I think he's saying um, is that there's nothing wrong with praying to be um, an obscure writer, but there is everything wrong with praying to be a bad writer. Um, and so what that implies is that uh, no matter what work you're doing, in this case, it's writing, we need to be as faithful as we can to God by being the best writers or workers we can. We need to do an excellent job in what we're doing. And in that self, that will then in some ways validate what we're doing. It will give a good impression to the readers um, it will make us trustworthy writers um, and they will respect and listen to what we're saying more clearly when we do those things and when we when we write, in this case, um, with excellence. Merton then goes on to describe how one can be the best writer and still remain obscure. He says, I would pray to be the best writer of a certain time and never to know it and also to be the most obscure. Saint Therese probably never even considered herself a writer. Bloy was one of the best writers in a time when there were some good writers, and also the most despised, one of the most obscure. So here he's suggesting that more important than being recognized and having our name remembered is writing well. And so this goes into... um, Something really interesting that I think um, Merton writes about quite a lot, and we've heard hints of it earlier, where he's wrestling with himself about his desires to write, um, to, be, to make it as a writer in the world, but also his need for humility. And so here I think he, he, this is a good introduction to this distinction he makes between um, writing for selfish ambition and writing for godly ambition. Um, and so when we write for our selfish ambition, when we write for fame or for recognition, that's that's not what we're called to be as writers. Um, that, that misses the point of writing as a form of ministry. It's, it um, contradicts the deeper calling to participate in God's creativity. Because when we're seeking our own recognition, that gets in the way of, of um pointing to God and what God is doing. Um, and when we are we have an ambition to do God's work, though, through our writing, then we're living into what we are called to do. For example, in one journal entry, he writes, I renounce with the greatest alacrity in the world the following literary projects. And then he lists various um, writing projects that he's been doing, such as writing a story about a bantamweight prizefighter named Kid Promiscuous, or um, writing a story about four people, too old and too young, models who had never seen each other before and who had to pose for a big color photo for an advertising agency as if they were a family, father, mother, daughter, grandson, or some child. Various other examples. And I think he's discerning within himself that these were written for um, selfish ambition, not for godly ambition. And so he, that's why he renounces them. In another journal entry, he, he uh, labels these two kinds of ambitions um, by pointing to the two divisions of uh, tongues, he describes them, the division of Babel and the div- division of Pentecost. He says, How can a man really know whether to write or not, whether to speak or not, whether his words and his silence are for good or for evil, for life or for death, unless he understands the two divisions of tongues, the division of Babel, when men were scattered in their speech because of pride, and the division of Pentecost, when the Holy Ghost sent out men of one dialect to speak all the languages of the earth and bring all men to unity, that they may be, Father, thou in me and one in them, that they may be one in us. So here he's describing how writing speaking using words can either lead to good or to evil to life or for death to death and this comes from the the reason that we are writing if it's out of selfish ambition this leads to evil and death if it's godly ambition it leads to goodness and life and and so he compares the the selfish ambition with the ambition of those people in the book of Genesis who tried to build a tower to heaven. And they, rather than um, scattering and, and, tr- and scattering across the face of the earth as God had commanded, they wanted to, to build this tower to, um, as, uh, in their pride um, to, to show what their hands could do. Um, and that was a, a selfish uh, act in, in disobeying what God had called them to do. Whereas at Pentecost, when the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit um, rested upon all of the disciples gathered um, like tongues of fire and um, gave them the, the ability to speak in such a way that everyone who was listening from various parts of the world could hear their message in their own language, that was, that was um, a godly ambition. They, they were receiving a gift from God. And they were proclaiming the message that God had given them. You could say they were participating in the creative work that God had shown them He was doing. Um, and in some ways, they they were even they hardly had to do anything in order for this effect to happen. They they just were speaking the message they were given, and God miraculously did the translation. And so, that's an image. These two. Uh, these two divisions of tongues are images for the sources of our writing, um, the reasons we are writing. and And so Merton is in, I think um, pointing out the importance of writing in cooperation with God's creative work rather than our own um, desire to make a name for ourselves, like the people building the tower of, at Babel uh, who ultimately failed. Merton described this m- more in more detail in, in a, this next ep- excerpt from his autobiography. He says, I wanted to be a writer, a poet, a critic, a professor. I wanted to enjoy all kinds of pleasures of the intellect and of the senses. And in order to have these pleasures, I did not hesitate to place myself in situations which I knew would end in spiritual disaster. Although generally, I was so blinded by my own appetites that I never even clearly considered this fact until it was too late and the damage was done. Of course, as far as my ambitions went, their objects were all right in themselves. There is nothing wrong in being a writer or a poet, at least I hope there is not. But the harm lies in wanting to be one for the gratification of one's own ambitions and merely in order to bring oneself up to the level demanded by his own internal self-idolatry. Because I was writing for myself and for the world, the things I wrote were rank with the passions and selfishness and sin from which they sprang. So here he he uses another term, self-idolatry, uh, to describe um, a, another cause for the selfish ambition as opposed to godly ambition. So he, he maybe he would say this, that when we are writing out of selfish ambition, we are ultimately worshipping ourselves, trying to to show others our own skills and trying to make a name for ourselves. But when we write out of godly ambition, then that is a form of worshipping God, and we have the, the proper uh, priority of, of putting God first and, and seeking Him in the things we do. And then the next Part following on from what I just read leads to a, a, another interesting series of, of thoughts. He says, An evil tree brings forth evil fruits when it brings forth fruit at all. And this, in the context of um, this evil tree being in the con- context of writing um, for selfish ambition. And so that leads to another theme that, um, that I've identified in some of Merton's writings in this chapter where the writer requires an inner transformation in order to bear good fruit in their writing. In another excerpt, we read that Merton describes his friend Lax again and Lax's vision of a society, that of an ideal society. And in this vision, it says, and Lax's vision is a vision of the day when they, the people, will turn on the radio and somebody will start telling them what they have really been wanting to hear and needing to know. They will find somebody who is capable of telling them of the love of God in language that will no longer sound hackneyed or crazy, but with authority and conviction, the conviction born of sanctity. So what I think he's referring to there is how the media is full of uh, writings and speeches and programs by Christians, but just because they're- cr- Christian doesn't necessarily mean they are um, uh, being done out of godly ambition, as we've been describing um, there there certainly are and can be, but not all of them are by necessity of their being Christian that um, as that Christians like anyone else often do things um, selfishly and and see, so in, a, in a self-seeking manner. And ultimately, that leads to evil fruit being born. And um, as he describes it, um, sounding hackneyed and crazy that people don't trust or find credible. Rather, in Lax's vision, there will be uh, writing, there will be programs that are... Um, born of authority and conviction, the conviction born of sanctity. And, and so that's what people will be listening to. Uh, there needs to be authority and conviction, but that conviction comes from uh, sanctity or holiness. And so this, this inner transformation of Christ-likeness towards holiness, of integrity, is the first step, it seems, before uh, one can write and expect that writing to bear fruit. Because without that core of um, that integral relationship with God being at the core, the writing will not bear fruit. It is only out of that relationship with God that the writing can bear fruit. Deepening this idea, in a journal entry, Merton writes, the best thing for me is a lucid silence that does not even imagine that it speaks to anybody a silence in which I see no interlocutor, frame no message for anyone, formulate no word either for man or paper. There will still be plenty to say when the time comes to write, and what is written will be simpler and more fruitful. And so here Merton is describing how before he speaks or writes, he needs silence first. And... um, and it is only out of that silence that his words can can bear fruit. Um, he needs to develop this discipline, this habit of, of uh, I'm just filling in the gaps, of um, cultivating this spirit of listening to God. Um, and it is only out of that, uh, that spirit of listening, that he can then have something to say. Something perhaps that is given from God for him to say, and something that is worth saying. Even deepening this further, this next excerpt is from No Man is an Island. Silence does not exist in our lives merely for its own sake. It is ordered to something else. Silence is the mother of speech. A lifetime of silence is ordered to an ultimate declaration which can be put into words, a declaration of all we have lived for. Life and death, words and silence, are given us because of Christ. In Christ we die to the flesh and live to the spirit. In him we die to illusion and live to truth. We speak to confess him, and we are silent in order to meditate on him and enter deeper into his silence, which is at once the silence of death and of eternal life, the silence of Good Friday night and the peace of Easter morning. So to summarize this section of the ministry of writing, Merton identifies three purposes of writing here. One is writing as a path to God. Two is writing to teach others from our experience, to teach them wisdom. And the third is to write as a form of evangelism or sharing the good news of Jesus with others. And as such, we need to be excellent writers. We need to, um, to do the best we can in our work. And also, uh, we have to recognize that um, our writing should come from a place of seeking God first and um, having a godly ambition Rather than a selfish ambition, so that by having a godly ambition, our writing can bear fruit. Merton also makes a distinguishment distinguishes between uh, public and private writing. Um, some of the writing is done for others to read, and some of it is done for himself in his own spiritual journey. And in one journal entry, I forgot to mention, he he writes. In any case, I hope to stop publishing for a time, for I believe it has now become impossible for me to stop writing altogether. Um, so, he, so for him, um, publishing isn't the end goal of writing. Sometimes it is, but writing has a deeper purpose. Um, even if he wrote something that no one else read, it would it might still be a form of ministry. At least for his own relationship with God. And so writing um, requires uh, that attentiveness to God. And in order to write and to bear fruit in our writing, uh, a transformation is required. That uh, we need to first be attentive to God um, and be cultivating, we need to be in in the process of cultivating a listening spirit to God, and and as he says, silence is the mother of um, speech, and so it is only out of that silence which he identifies with um, Christ, ultimately Christ on the cross and the peace of the resurrection. It is in that silence of Christ uh, and that fullness of peace um, where we find the source for uh, fruitful writing. So now it's time to point out the limitations of writing. I work as a, a proofreader, and I often proofread and edit academic papers, and so I always look out in the conclusion of a paper to make sure that they've, um, they've pointed out some of their work's limitations, some of the areas that um, they might have um, developed a faulty methodology or some things that they... That um, they have yet to explore in the future, and so that's what we'll do now. Uh, the limits of writing. The first that Merton points out in in this chapter, he says uh, in a letter to um, Dom Jean Baptiste Porion, who was a, another a fellow monk um, in in France, actually. Uh, he said uh, Merton says, "For my own part, as you know, the betrayal of our deep self." that sometimes takes place in our effort to communicate with others exteriorly, has long been a problem. It is not easy for a writer to learn to live interiorly without a witness, without a potential reader. But once this intruder is expelled, we truly find ourselves and find God and find other men in God. So one of the things I think he's saying here is he he implies that when we, whenever we communicate with something, uh, something with others, whether through the written or the spoken word, for instance, we are betraying some part of our deep self. And um, he doesn't explain that very much here. He does in another passage we'll read, but that's one of the limitations, is um, betrayal of some deep, um, perhaps secretive aspect of ourselves. But another thing he says is that. Um, He says it's not easy for a writer to learn to live without a witness, without a potential reader. But once the writer has learned to do that, they truly find themselves and God and other people in God. And so he seems to be um, suggesting that um, the writer needs to be able to write for themselves and not uh, distracted by who may be reading their work. He then says, we betray ourselves and one another in the no man's land which exists between human beings and into which they go out to meet one another disguised in words. So he seems to also be saying that words can be a disguise and get in the way from the truth. And yet, he says, without words, we cannot find ourselves. Without communication with men, we do not know God. Fides ex auditu. Faith comes from hearing. So at the same time, even if words are uh, imperfect at communicating communicating what we uh, experience, we can only understand the truth through words. The the faith is passed on through um, words. And so there's this tension here of needing words, but also recognizing the limitations that words have. Um, And also the distraction that can be there at times when when writing a writer needs to write truthfully. And um, this this means that they can't be influenced or swayed by what they think others will think of their writing. But in order to to have the integrity required of writing, one needs to be able to have that clear relationship with God and that truthful relationship with oneself in order to write as faithfully as possible. So we've just looked at a tension that Merton identifies within the writing vocation itself of the limitations and yet the necessity of words. The next tension and the main tension and limitation that he points out in this chapter is between the the writing vocation or the poetic vocation as he describes it and that of the mystic or the monk. And first I should explain a little bit Um, A background and that is that a mystic is someone who seeks union with God uh, and that union with God comes through a contemplative contemplative prayer in this context and um, and that union with God um, this is not something I've experienced but it's just things I've been reading uh, and what Merton describes it it's a it's a union that comes through prayer and um it's, a, a, and it's entering a mystery that cannot be put into words. In theological terms, it's apophatic, which does not seek to define God or um, seek any images of God, but recognizes that God is a complete mystery that we will never understand. And yet it's possible uh, to be unified with God. And that's in contrast to the cataphatic um, uh, or positive approach. Um, Apophatic is the negative approach, not in a bad sense, but um, negative in the sense that there's nothing we can say that will accurately describe God. Whereas the cataphatic approach is um, recognizing how God still expresses himself through images, through, um, through the physical world. In a previous episode, I was speaking with Will. It was, I believe, three episodes ago. Will and I were reviewing um, the past season of Forecast, and we mentioned how in um, Christian theology, there is this understanding that God is both um, unknowable in his essence and yet knowable in his energies. And and so there's this, on one hand, there's this mystery to God that we will never understand, and on the other hand, God's presence fills all things, and so everything is in some way connected to God. And so the apophatic and the mystical approach seeks to find union with God through um, through getting rid of all of the images and the words about God, and through uh, through prayer. Whereas the cataphatic approach um, seeks God through the the physical creation through perhaps an example a beautiful or a beautiful day in nature one might um, one might say that they can feel the presence of God or through w- words um, th- through the incarnation of Christ he fully revealed God to us that way so these two approaches um, Merton uh, seems to identify. Uh, with also the poet and the mystic where the mystic um, approaches God uh, through um, through prayer and through this negation of images and words whereas the poet um, the poet relies upon words in order to express what they've experienced but I think the best thing to do now is to just read a little bit of what he writes about this this tension between the poet and the mystic uh, he first describes how um, the, the mystics approach to seeking union with God. Um, he says, What the Holy Spirit demands of the mystic is peaceful consent and a blind trust in him. For all this time, since the soul does not act of itself, it, remain, it remains blind and in darkness, having no idea where it is going or what is being done, and tasting satisfaction that is at first extremely tenuous and ineffable and obscure. The reason is, of course, that the soul is not yet sufficiently spiritualized to be able to grasp and appreciate what is going on within it. It remains with nothing but the vaguest and most general sense that God is really and truly present and working there, a sense which is fraught with a greater certitude than anything it has ever experienced before. And yet, and this is key here, if one stops to analyze the experience, or if one makes a move to increase its intensity by a natural act, the whole thing will evade his grasp and he will lose it altogether. So maybe if I can try to put this in other words, he seems to be saying that this, when the mystic approaches God through prayer and they experience the, the mystery, they can only experience it, um, it's like a fleeting glimpse and it cannot be put into words. And as soon as the mystic tries to put it into words, he, they, they lose it. And this is where he goes on. Now, it is precisely here that the aesthetic instinct changes its colors and, from being a precious gift, becomes a real danger. If the intuition of the poet naturally leads him into the inner sanctuary of his soul, it is for a special purpose in the natural order. When the poet enters into himself, it is in order to reflect upon his inspiration and to clothe it with a special and splendid form, and then to display it to those outside. And here the radical difference between the artist and the mystic begins to be seen. The artist enters into himself in order to work. For him, the superior soul is a forge where inspiration kindles a fire of white heat, a crucible for the transformation of natural images into new created forms. But the mystic enters into himself not in order to work, but to pass through the center of his own soul, and lose himself in the mystery and secrecy and infinite transcendent reality of God living and working within him. So there's the tension he describes. um, And maybe this is something he identified within himself who had both a monastic and a poetic vocation. And that is that as a monk, his goal was this mysterious union with God. And yet as a writer... His goal was to express something of that to the to the world. Um, but in the very act of trying to express that, he then had the danger of losing any ground, you might say, he had covered in this pursuit of God. So then he continues. Consequently, if the mystic happens to be at the same time an artist, when prayer calls him within himself to the secrecy of God's presence, His art will be tempted to start working and producing and studying the creative possibilities of this experience. And therefore, immediately, the whole thing runs the risk of being frustrated and destroyed. The artist will run the risk of losing a gift of tremendous supernatural worth in order to perform a work of far less value. He will let go of the deep spiritual grace which has been granted him in order to return to the reflection of that grace within his own soul. He will withdraw from the mystery of identification with reality, beyond forms and objectified concepts, and will return to the realm of subject and object. He will objectivize his own experience and seek to exploit and employ it for its own sake. He will leave God and return to himself, and in so doing, though he follows his natural instinct to create, he will in fact be less creative. For the creative work done directly in the soul and on the soul by God himself, the infinite creator spiritus is beyond all comparison with the work which the soul of man itself accomplishes in imitation of the divine creator. So just pausing, this reminds me of what we were saying earlier about how sometimes for the person trying to write as a form of of ministry, the very idea of holding on to writing can get in the way of what God might be leading that person to do that God might actually be calling them not to write uh, but to do some other creative work even beyond the arts and um, and so that seems to be similar to what Merton is saying here that um, that the, the the artist can be tempted to to try to be faithful to their task of creating things, but in the so doing, uh, lose sight of where God might be leading them, maybe somewhere deeper, somewhere richer than than their own work of creating can take them. which is a real tension indeed uh, for the for the writer and and the person who wants to write as a form of ministry, and especially if they're also a mystic. Um, because a lot of writers, I, I would say, Are not trying to record an experience, a mystical experience with God. Um, Perhaps it's the a lot of writers I think tend to write about more of the cataphatic experiences they have, such as inspiration in nature, a beautiful autumn um, sunny afternoon, or um, an experience they're reflecting on with people. All of these. Uh, in, uh, we Christians believe God is within those things, but in a in a more positive sense than the negative sense. By, I mean, by when I say negative, I mean the absence of any words or images that comes in the mystics' work. So I think this conversation is quite unique to to Merton's context because he's both a monk and a writer. Whereas um, I think many of us. Most of us, perhaps, are are not monks, um, and so and so don't have the same tension. Yet I think it's still worth um, seeing what Merton says about this tension. And yet I think uh, people who are not monks can still relate to this to some degree. And I think here of a an example. When I was in university, I was enrolled in a summer program called um, Urban Term. And I was living with about 12 other people in an intentional community while we were taking classes and um, doing work in the community. And it was a really full-on experience of living together, cooking meals, sharing life together, doing chores together in in the houses where we lived. And in the middle of the summer, um, someone uh, who was not part of our group saw what we were doing, and they were really excited about what we were doing. And they actually created a blog for us, a web blog. And they said that it would be really great if we could write about our experiences on this blog for the outside world to read about and to to learn about what we were experiencing. And um, our professor, one of our professors, heard about this blog and just advised us that uh, that maybe it will be useful to write about it, but he he didn't want us to um, get distracted by writing about what we were experiencing and thus not fully living into the experience itself. And so I think this is an example we can actually relate to because when we take the time to write about something, that not only takes time and energy to do, which we could be spending doing something else, but it also um it also changes and influences the experience that we are going through um and and so i I've, I've heard some writers suggest that you really need about 2 decades before you can uh, write about an experience with enough distance and enough perspective and i'm not i i don't know i haven't lived you know that long to say that with much experience um but i think it's helpful to say that because it shows that when you're living in something, when you're experiencing something in the moment, you're not. It doesn't seem that one is ready enough to to write about it. One doesn't quite have the perspective yet to write about it um, accurately or rightly. Um, and if one does, one has to be aware of how that changes the experience itself. And um, this actually reminds me of an article that. Um, my professor from seminary, my writing professor, her name is Susan Janus, and she wrote an article a few years ago on Friends Journal, in which she wrote it's about the ministry of writing, and it's also the link to it is on the Forethought website. It's called "Wielding Thor's Hammer: What It Means to Write as a Form of Ministry," and in this article, um, Susan Janus, Janus writes that Annie Dillard, who is a writer, Once quipped that if you want to keep your memories, don't write a memoir. Writing, in the imposition of structure and point of view and imagery, often reveals, perhaps even creates, a meaning in those past events we did not see during the living of them. The written account becomes our memory. Writing, therefore, has the power to change the past. Not the actual events, of course, but how those events continue to influence us. Writing has tremendous power, most certainly, but when we play with that power, will we cast a light into the darkness surrounding us, or diffuse the light into an impenetrable fog where we lose our way? So all of this to say that writing has power to to illuminate or to obscure things. And um, and I think what Merton is saying is when when a mystic tries to write about their mystical experience with God, those words tend to obscure things rather than illuminate. because what can one say about God? Um, when it, it, um, in terms of the the deepest connect, um, unity and union that a mystic is seeking with God, Of course, God has revealed things to us and does reveal things to us. But, um, but there comes a point, I think Merton would say, that words fail to express any of that adequately. And then Merton says, Unable to f- fully lose himself in God, doomed by the restlessness of talent to seek himself in the highest natural gift that God has given him, the artist falls from contemplation and returns to himself as artist. Instead of passing through his own soul into the abyss of the infinite actuality of God himself, he will remain there a moment only to emerge again into the exterior world of multiple created things whose variety once more dissipates his energies until they are lost in perplexity and dissatisfaction. And so this just goes back to the examples I was using of how writing can, 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 be a di- can be a distraction of what one is experiencing. Um, and I will say that I'm giving writing a bad rap, and Susan has written an, another piece that was actually published on Foreshadow um, in the summertime, I believe, and it's called Getting Unstuck, The Personal Story and the Spiritual Journey which you can find on the Foreshadow magazine website and there she writes about one of the, the 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 blessings of writing memoir is that it can help us to see the past and interpret and understand the past in a new way and so that's that's the positive side of writing about the past um but going back to merton um he seems to be saying that there's a real temptation when, when, uh, when the mystic is trying to find union with God. Um, writing about it can can do more harm than good. Now let's continue reading what he says, though. There is therefore a likelihood that one who has the natural gift of artistic intuition and creation may be unable to pass on to the superior and most spiritual kind of contemplation in which the soul rests in God without images, without concepts, without any intermediary. The artist may be like the hare in the fable who far outstrips the tortoise without talent in the beginnings of the contemplative life, but who in the end is left behind. In a word, natural gifts and talents may be of great value in the beginning, but contemplation can never depend on them. They may indeed prove to be obstacles unless, by some special grace, we are completely detached from them. And so the artist may well receive the first taste of infused prayer, for, as St. John of the Cross says, that is granted to relatively many souls, and often quite soon in their spiritual life, especially where conditions are favorable. But because of this tragic Promethean tendency to exploit every experience as material for creation, the artist may remain there all his life on the threshold, never entering into the banquet, but always running back into the street to tell the passers-by of the wonderful music he has heard coming from inside the palace of the king. There is very little I can really say in response to Merton's experiences, because I am not a monk and I have not um, delved into mystical prayer. But I just want to have some reflections on what he's saying as it regards writing as a form of ministry. And the first question I have, if I could ask him, um, would be, is it possible, given this tension... Is it possible for the writer or artist to momentarily step aside to first witness the the encounter with God, and then later write from memory without distorting that? Maybe twenty years later or something. Or does does any attempt at any time to put it into words distort it? So that's that's one question. Um, he would probably say that um, any attempt to put this experience into words would distort it. But then I, I wonder if that experience itself of being transformed by God, if it still makes its way into the writer's works, even if the writer isn't writing about God, if they're just writing about a tree or about what they did that day, surely, based on what he said earlier, that transformation still somehow does make its way into the writer's life. As he said earlier, silence is the mother of speech. And so this mystical encounter must also be the, the mother of, of bearing good fruit. So there, So p- perhaps what he's describing as a limitation is really when the artist is trying to, to write directly about their experience of God. So perhaps taking what he's saying, there's some wisdom we might take that it may not always be worth trying to write about every experience we have of God uh, because sometimes sometimes we have to just l- let the silence speak um, more powerfully than any words we might put down. Um, and if we do, perhaps that's where metaphors and images come because metaphors enable us to, um, to describe something mysterious through something tangible and s- through something um, common. And, and maybe that's why metaphors are so powerful, because they are, um, they are tools we use, and we already know that the tools themselves are not what they are pointing to, but they still give some glimpse into what we are trying to communicate. I think it might also be worth asking what is the motivation of the artist who's trying to write about their mystical experience is it to um, is it going back to the terms we were using earlier is it for um, self is it for this self ambition selfish ambition or is it for godly ambition um, at the end of this passage we just read he describes how the artist is like someone. Uh, on the threshold of a wedding banquet and they run back to the street to tell others of the wonderful music they've heard. He's describing that as a negative thing for the artist, that they're never able to go into the banquet. But on the other side, that artist is pointing others to come closer to the banquet. And so they are using their uh, their experience and their, their words and their uh, their gifts to draw people in and for for a godly ambition and so um so so this limitation isn't all negative maybe this this limitation isn't a completely um bad thing the last thing i just want to point out is that merton here contrasts that the work of the artist or the, the artist enters himself in order to work whereas the mystic enters himself in order to lose himself and to be united with God. I just wanted to push that a bit because um, Eugene Peterson has written that the purpose of writing and um, the purpose of communication ultimately is for communion. And so we write in order to um, share ourselves with others, and share ourselves with God, and and to be in a space where we can commune with others and with God, and that's what the the mystic is doing as well when they pray. Uh, it's to be in a closer communion with God, and so I wonder if um, if even though the poet and the artist are limited in what they can say about God, if in some mysterious way through the the godly ambition of seeking communion with god and with others if that even if it's through the cataphatic images through the the scents and the sights and the sounds and the sensory details if that somehow can create a way for the reader for the writer to still enter into that mystic mystical mysterious place um, because the goal of of that writing is the same goal that the the monk and the mystic has um, to to be united with God and to be communing with God. And so maybe by that shared goal, it still orients the, the reader and the writer in the same direction and maybe enables them to get closer into the banquet just by the fact that they are seeking communion with God through their writing well maybe merton will say some more illuminating things that will help us understand these tensions a bit better in future chapters which i hope to look at in future forecasts just to summarize this past forecast we looked at two main categories of of merton's ri- of merton's writing on writing the first is vocation and the second is the ministry of writing and within vocation um, Merton describes different kinds of vocations and hierarchies of vocations, ultimately, the vocation of all Christians being to participate in Christ's work of making all things new, and, um, and how writing can be one of those ways that we do that. And in, in, in the ministry of writing category, um, Merton describes writing as um, both a path towards Christ likeness and a way to reach out to others and to teach them and to tell them the good news of Jesus. And he also describes two different motives for writing, um, selfish ambition versus godly ambition, or the Tower of Babel versus the Pentecost um, power that came and the disciples shared the good news in a variety of languages. And and then he also describes how the importance of silence and transformation in Christ, so that we can bear fruit through our writing, and we also looked at limits of writing, the limits that come with words, and the the impossibility of trying to put into words uh, the mystical experience with God, something only possible by God's grace, um, but uh, something that needs to be we need to be aware of. I hope that you've enjoyed and uh, found this really insightful, especially if you are a writer and are trying to understand how you can use writing in service to God and to others. And there are some more resources you can find on the Foreshadow website, foreshadowmagazine.com. if you go to the Forethought page. And we also publish new work every week. And if you'd like to sign up for our free weekly newsletter, you can do that on the website. We welcome any comments or feedback, so do get in touch by emailing me at foreshadowmagazine at gmail.com. And please share this with people you think would be interested with this work, Um, and we really appreciate that. So thank you for listening. That's the forecast for today.